listening to Rally DNA. Hello and welcome back to Rally DNA. I'm Killian Cronin and joining me as ever is my illustrious co-host Jamie Arkell. Hello Jamie. Hello Killian, hello everyone. This week marks our 10th episode, for which will be our last for season one of Rally DNA. And Tony Simpson, that's for you. I know you like a, a season. Um, so let me start by saying thanks to very, very much to everyone who has been listening to the pod so far. It's great to watch the listenership grow and the support and comments we get online. It really drives us to, to keep going and, and, and make more of these. Um, it's really been a lot of fun. I think we, we've both enjoyed it, Jamie, to be fair. Absolutely, man. Um, and thank you also to all of our guests who kindly gave up their time to, to talk to two rally fans who are kind of just nerding out and indulging our, our passion for the sport. Yeah, truly. I mean, the response from everyone has been absolutely top draw. I mean, you know, completely out of all proportion, I think, from both of us expected, to be honest. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the engagement from people who've been reaching out is fantastic and, and, and you know, ever so surprising still as it goes on. Um, so yeah hopefully that keeps it up uh, that it does stay that way uh, please if you if you want to be on the pod do do contact us um so this week for episode 10 and the season finale we thought it was apt to do a slight twist on the top 10 type formula and the twist is in fact that it is just a list of 10 we're, we're not actually trying to rank these or grade them um because that would provide far too much controversy for us to handle no doubt um so today jamie and i will be discussing 10 interesting slash consequential career moves by drivers in the world rally championship over the years these aren't necessarily good moves or ones that seem you know a genius that they were absolutely going to lead to success in fact some decidedly are not good moves but we of course have the benefit of of hindsight and rallying, of course, as we know, it doesn't always present so many options to its competitors. You know, there, there isn't a lot of cars, seats or teams, you know, even at its peak in terms of manufacturers backing cars. It, there isn't a lot of choice out there for a guy looking to get a, you know, a contract and a seat that's going to steady him for a few years. So 10 moves that are memorable and worthy of discussion might be more appropriate, but uh, that wouldn't be the easiest title for Spotify, would it? I think it's also worth noting that uh, it, it's sort of consequential for either the driver or occasionally the, the championship as a whole, you know, because some did completely alter the way a given season panned out, whereas some on a more micro level just completely torpedoed a given driver's season. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and some are even examples, maybe. I think one we'll point out certainly seems to be almost a passing of a torch moment in a, the end of one era of regulations into another where some people maybe don't quite make the jump and make it work from one set of regs to the other. Absolutely. So Jamie, do you want to lead us away with, with number 10? Well, it's just, it's not number 10, but we're going to do maybe chronologically here. So we'll start with this one. That's it. We start with, with, uh, with way back in 1977 uh, with Walter Roll um, from his jumping ship midway through the 77 season uh, from Opal to Fiat um it's always fascinated me this one as much as uh obviously walter roll's formative career was completely opal based various Asconas and, and and cadets and things and and cih engines for days um and then he, he found himself seemingly seemingly sitting very pretty indeed with the cadet gte um in 1975 uh and it's one of these rally cars that on paper, it you know appears to have all the makings of a weld beater. You know, um, available in eight valve engines to start with, and then sixteen valve, uh, sixteen valve version version soon after. 
Um, but it turned into an absolute nightmare for the team. Um, maddeningly poor reliability. Um, and largely with um, transmission and engine-related issues. And of course, what's probably as much interesting as anything with this one is that it's a mid-season jump, which you just don't really see in any motorsport. There's examples throughout the years, but it's it's normally pretty clear-cut season and contract ends or one looks to start a season with somewhere else. But to jump mid-season surely gives an indication into his mindset at the time and his frustrations with that, you know, issue plagued 16 valve engine oh undoubtedly i mean it's definitely worth mentioning that i guess teams and the structure of the championship was far less codified back then so it wasn't mm-hmm. unknown for you know you didn't have to compete in every rally as a manufacturer and, and you know i mean look at what Roll and the rest were doing with mercedes and toyota and anyone else in the early 80s you know that anyone who any, any seat going potentially but but you're right uh, and i mean to give him his credit i think Walter stuck at that GTE for a very long time indeed, probably because he got the sense that the car itself was fundamentally decent. I mean, God, Christ, look at it. It's a great looking car. It has to cracker. Good, right? um, and, you know, a proper peak group four thing. Uh, but, you know, the 16 valve engine came up, came, uh, was introduced, homologated in 1976 and was plenty powerful, but just of Kent seemed to uh, tip the transmission over the edge in terms of what it could cope, cope with uh, and just constant litany of retirements, uh, head gasket failures, uh, oil surge issues and the like um, throughout 77, uh, sorry, 76 and 1977. Uh, and I mean, uh, it's, it's well documented that the Group 1 cars uh, all had eight valve heads and they did invariably better in terms of top 10 finishes. You know, fellas like Anders Kuhling doing, you know, netting decent top 10 scores throughout this period and the 16 valve I mean, Walter won, uh, I think it was Ypres at the 16 valve, but most of the time it, it ended by the side of the road uh, with a, a pool of steam, sorry, a pool of water and a big cloud of steam. So it should be pointed out as well that those issues that you've listed there aren't particularly unique for the period either. They, they were something that would crop up in almost any car. Transmissions were generally weaker than head gaskets were an issue that would play a part for a good while after that in rallying um but it must just show maybe just that he was so happy with the previous car and even you'd assume a driver of his competency mechanical sympathy is far more important than than others uh or than more recent times that it must have just been fairly fragile oh absolutely i mean you'd assume that a driver who I mean, not owes his career to Opal, but certainly owes a, a degree of progression up to that point. He'd want to make it with the team that had given him that chance. And, you know, he stuck with it for a long time. But then the opportunity to drive a Fiat 131 arose in the September of 1977 and he elected it. And, and, you know, it's hard to fault that decision because a couple of years later, he won his first world title and the rest, as they say, is history. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, look, and another peak group four car as well, the 131 is hard to say no to, I'd imagine, at the time. Um, Pisses all over an escort. <laughs> <laughs> we were avoiding controversy. <laughs> Although you've got to say on the subject of cadets, we just don't see enough of those in around this, certainly around my parts anyway. What's weird about it is it seems to have an outside, have had an outside impact on sort of rallying culture for, for a, a car that did very little in terms of you know quantifiable results we we all know 
that what a cadet gt looks like that that you know fantastic wasp-like livery the the ats five spokes you know it, it's kind of it, it's 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 got a real sort of cultural pull to it or perhaps that's just me speaking for us rally nerds but you know consumes it seems to be have a it's it's cultural clout seems to outweigh its achievement perhaps and maybe so more so for us i guess maybe more people might say associate an opal rally car with an Ascona or a Manta perhaps in a more publicized documented era that probably more videos and footage exists of those cars we are way down the esoteric rabbit warren and delightfully so absolutely well with that let's let's move on to the next one on our list and sticking with the transitional era we're just coming from group four to the guy who maybe is best known for that transition uh Mikula, for going from his decision to go from Ford or Mercedes, whatever way you want to look at it, as he was driving Mercedes cars as well in in that era, to go to the Group B, well, it'd still be the Group 4, Audi Quattro at that point, mm-hmm. uh, four-wheel drive. You know, this was just an unknown uh, in rallying, and it is it is a sliding doors moment for the sport uh, and for him. <laughs> um, you know, no one could have foreseen the impact that car had. In fact, I'd wager that, People really thought that it wouldn't have that impact, if anything. And yeah, I mean, you know, we won't, we, we will talk about it more, but it's easy to skip to the end here and say the rest is history. Mikla in a quattro, they go hand in hand, you know, just dominated on Luke's surface. And yeah, I mean, he, he's the guy I still associate with a quattro the most. I personally speaking, although, you know, it's easy to picture Mouton and Blomquist driving later models, but yeah, I think right. for me, Mikla and Quattro are the defining pairing for that car. It's weird, isn't it? It's definitely up there, uh, although for me, Mikla is Eaton, uh, sorry, is Escort, rather, but um, absolutely, I think it's complete, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to for anyone born after the event and not watching it at the time to sort of grasp how, how much of a stab in the dark it was. You know, Audi obviously didn't have any rallying presence to speak of, but it had very little road car presence outside of, mm-hmm. you know, being a weird auto union rump thing and, you know, doing a few rebadged polos. Um, and of course the whole weight of, of rally opinion generally seemed to go against it, thinking that it would be too heavy, too bulky, too cumbersome to sort of, you know, any, any weight added would outweigh, would counterbalance any performance benefit. Um, but as you say, you know, the rest is history. Um, it's, it, you know, there's that Mikola himself put it best in an interview with Motorsport Magazine many, many years later. Uh, I'll never forget the first stage I did in that car on the Monte Carlo Rally in 1981. Bernard Dani set off one minute ahead of me in his Lancia Stratos. It was a 14 kilometer stage with ice and snow covering the first part. After about 16 kilometers, I passed him on a long straight. I was maybe 100 kilometers per hour faster than him when I overtook. I don't think he knew he. I don't think he knew what hit him. Then people started saying the car would be good only in snow, but they soon had to admit it worked on gravel too. Speaks um, for itself, really. Hindsight's wonderful, but I mean, it's it's the the year that rallying changed. And even even if, of course, if that season was beset with rotten reliability and, and all the other things that a team still finding its way in the sport would be expected to struggle with. Well, what we have to point out here as well is that Mikola was a real superstar of the age, you know, so um, the move being looked on in the press at the time was probably with, you know, almost derision. And it's, it's maybe one, maybe it's a poor comparison, but, you know, when Lewis Hamilton went to Mercedes, no one probably thought a whole much, 
stockpile of it that it maybe wouldn't lead to much success. It took a little bit longer maybe for that to come right, whereas this pretty much just started working straight away. And it was evident immediately that this was the right call for Mikola, you know, yeah. but he was probably being told not to do it, if anything. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you also have the other side of the coin um, because uh, Walter Tressa approached um, Walter Roll at the same time. Uh, and Walter refused to, to, to take up his offer, I think because he was um, beholden to the Mercedes contract he had, which, of course, came to nothing because Mercedes, you know, crapped out when they saw the Quattro and, and, and withdrew, um, which is how Michel Mouton got the call. And, and again, that's probably one of those... Uh, those decisions that at the time must have provoked a fair bit of consternation. But with hindsight, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's superb, right? Absolutely. And look, it did take two seasons for him to get his championship, you know, but it was evident immediately that that car was going to work and that four-wheel drive was going to be the future and, and going to be the all-conquering must-have. It's just you weren't going to win without it. It was evident, you know, the reliability issues were what really played him then. But, you know, he was the guy that ushered in that era, I'd argue, as much as anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and if nothing else, because he had to wait for that title as we got to see him um, an even more impressive battle uh, against 037's on tarmac. You know, that, that sort of infamous title duel and battle over the course of several seasons between rear-wheel drive and, and four. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yet they were. It was certainly a great era because you had, of course, that was when the Group E regs had been ushered in, and you had Lancia trying to work more loose regulation into a more traditional layout in terms of its drive or where the drive was being sent to. But of course, um, they did worked mid engine before with the Stratos, but you know, it was a great battle all the same. I think there was a general thought, thinking then in the paddock that if anyone could make a two-wheel drive rally car continue to work and beat a four-wheel drive one, it'd be Lancia because you know, I mean, there's a reason they're rallying royalty, and even more so at the time, it was the the Ferrari of 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 the of the sport. Um, yeah, <laughs> and of course, a team that always had something up their sleeve as well as a, a previous guest did point out to us. Well, yes. <laughs> um yes moving on from that i dare say quite neatly uh we have further in group b timo salonen um great glasses great glasses absolutely um <laughs> a style icon as uh as Pekka Lappi would would surely agree um yes and obviously by no means uh a rank outsider before signing with peugeot but Equally, hardly a household name. Um, As a stark contrast, maybe to Mikola here, because you know Mikola, you would have pipped to become world champion at some point. You know he just lost out to Waldegard before that switch to Audi. Here we have slightly a different end of the scale. Absolutely, yeah. I, I don't know what an equivalent would be in the modern world. You know, because it's hard to to judge. You know how 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 highly rated Salonen was by people in the know at the time. Um, he'd won three times though with various Nissans and Datsuns, um, and and did sterling work with the 240 RS throughout 1984. But still, you know, it had to. It was quite a quirk of circumstance that put him in that in the 205. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, he'd obviously impressed uh, Jean Todt enough to be given the shout after Vatanen's unfortunate Argentine off. And he just seemed to click with that 205 immediately. 
um, or pretty much immediately. It was it three, three times, you know, three events in, he he won in Portugal, yeah, and then yeah. you know just smashed it, you know, four four rounds on the bounce mid season, which really wasn't something that was being done in the championship to that point. And it's, I think, even in, across the whole group era, even the the, the champions of of the eighties. There was rarely that many wins in the championship, but to get four on the bounce was unheard of, really. Um, I think then, that's an important point. You know, we, we've become accustomed to, or more accustomed to drivers going on those kind of, you know, winning blitzes um, in various forms of motorsport. But it was a lot harder to do back then, uh, mainly because of reliability. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it wasn't always down to the talent of the driver you 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 would be beset by some unforeseen issue as drivers still are but it was certainly more prevalent um 30 40 50 years ago uh, you couldn't always depend on the car you were only part of the the winning solution as it were absolutely uh, and such an unassuming driver you know by all accounts even even for Finns, who as we all know are a fairly uh, quiet and, and subdued, seemingly in terms of of, of that aspect. Um, but yeah, uh, eight wins over the course of his per- spell with Peugeot, which is the highest tally of any driver in the Group B era. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a, a stat that speaks for itself, really. Yeah, and 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 absolutely. I mean, look, it's it's proven now, and we knew, we knew. I I wasn't around, but you know, you know. I think it would have been <laughs> it would have been common knowledge at the time that the two hundred five was was a winning platform but i'd imagine you know if we were on the outside looking in would you say okay they've got this guy to replace fat and then yeah that's a that's a great shout you know he's definitely got it probably wouldn't have said that you know you wouldn't be writing them off but you wouldn't be saying oh they've really lucked out here you know this guy who's got a a speckling of wins and a couple of datsons to go out and just go on that you know four round winning bounce and just yeah that's the thing, isn't it? He, 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 you know, there's plenty of, uh, of, of well, drivers from all over the place, but plenty of Finns from that period and before who were, you know, lightning quick on a round or on a given surface or in a particular car, but but struggled to sort of make that or to eke that form over uh, over a wider wider spread of results and, and, and surfaces. But but Timo Salonen, let's face it, you know, from the off, quick in most things, quick everywhere, give or take, and you know. The, the title speaks for itself, really. And, uh, you know, and he had that world championship locked in pretty quickly then as a result. It was, it was, you know, it was quite early on. It was, it was never in doubt that he was going to be world champion yeah. at the end of the year. It must have been quite a contrast, even if you probably would never admit to it, but, you know, pooling around in that 240 RS, which is, I mean, the, the most, I think probably the most group four-ish of the actual group B rally cars in terms of concept, you know, a naturally aspirated rear wheel drive resolutely. So versus, you know, by most people's reckoning, the peak group B car, you know, we could argue about S fours and things, but in terms of the concept and in terms of, you know, public profile, it's two or five T16, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Big time, big time. You know, yeah. What more can we say really, you know, and the two forty RS, I've, I've great place in my heart for it. I mean, it looks like it's a Lego car in terms of its shape, but it's it's damn cool. But it was never going to win a world championship. Oh, absolutely. And Timo Salonen, I suppose, a bit of trivia to drop in. His co-driver from that year, the only co-driver to win a world championship with two separate drivers. Very neat. Good. 
pub quiz fact there if, you're, if one was ever doing a, a rallying based pub quiz um so coming out of the group b era we to someone who was driving then but we're going to cover a different part of his career Juha Kankinen, someone who would have driven across many different eras of, of rally over the course of his long and distinguished career but here we're going to talk about his move from lancia to toyota in 1988 yes um obviously uh Kankinen, uh was the first uh, world champion of the group a era in 87 um and also, I think, believe became the first person driver to defend a title in WRC history back then as well. Uh, but I think it became clear that he became very quickly fed up with the uh, with with Lancia's hyper partisan way of going about rallying, which which is hardly a surprise given that they've been doing it forever and ever, and people like Bjorn Waldegard were getting sick of it ten years previously. But um, you know, I, I, it's a strong argument for him being de facto team leader, and I can kind of see why he got fed up. Uh, and in the end, uh, it proved too much. That coupled with the lure of what Toyota and TTE were doing with the the Group A Celica proved too much, and uh, he opted to, to decamp to Toyota for 1988. Yes, of course, somewhere he had started his career with Toyota as well, of course, didn't he? So yes. you know somewhat familiar grounds perhaps um but you know yeah did have his hand forced somewhat if if, if you look at any videos of of Kankin or read about his his nature and his manner you don't really see it as someone that would necessarily gel with that lancia approach to to doing things do you no no i mean there's a reason we all talk about uh mark ulm as the the Tim Finn, you know, because he's he's such an anomaly for, for that nation's drivers, isn't he? You know, Kankinen has a lot more to the standard Finnish fare that we expect. Stoic. Um, stoic. Stoic indeed, yeah. <laughs> Fond of Pirellis. Um, and then, of course, you know, he, he got to Toyota. Uh, must have been the, the, the fact that the GT4 was such a high-profile programme at the time. Um was well known that Japanese teams like Toyota favoured production Group A rallying, so it was very much in the team's wheelhouse. Um, and the car had a very high-profile development, you know, with the extract uh, extract uh, transmission link as well with Mike Endy. It must have seemed like a, a very good way, a very good program for him to hitch his wagon to. Um, yeah, and you know, a great team principal in, in Ove Anderson. I don't think there's really anyone who didn't like working with with him that I've ever seen or heard about. Um, you know, really good guy, got the best out of his people across the board, you know, so that must, you know, runs a tight ship. Mm-hmm. Um, coming from Lancia's somewhat haphazard way of doing things, this must really seem like right, right in Kankinen's wheelhouse, as it were. You know, oh, and, yeah. and you know, the integrally, okay, it it hangs around another while after this, but you know, the GT4 newer more modern more technologically advanced perhaps does the integrale seem like it doesn't have a whole pile of life left in it at this point yeah i maybe mean everyone so. sorry go on man. no no maybe so that's that's pretty much it yeah i think everyone perhaps except like even lancia were, were surprised by how much development potential that car had i mean there must have been so many times prior to uh spoiler alert 1993 that the various team principals and drivers had thought you know there's no way that they can get more power more suspension travel out of this you know 
boxy boxy uh, hatchback that was what come that point was 10 years old if not more yeah um, and yet yeah they did um and the Celica, for all its its tech and polish was fairly torrid for 88 and 89 you know lots and lots of retirements lot of overheating um the sort of infamous cooling blanks that uh, that 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 uh, tte stipulated needs to be removed and then supposedly uh, toyota engineers when it got back to japan decided it looked horrible and decided to blank off and then homologate in place which completely stymied the team to do much with them afterwards and that kind of set the set the the record for the rest of those two seasons really yeah i suppose look where where the, the gt4 fell down was that it was this new thing with a newish team and where Lancia was still succeeding was that they knew what they were doing and they knew how they got that platform to work. Um, whereas, of course, TT would come good, but, you know, like anything that's new, there is going to be issues. But the, the stats from that first season make for fairly grim reading. Uh, you know, a guy off the back of two world championships to 37th overall in the final championship standings at the end of 1988. Mm. It's a big fall. And how? I mean, yeah. And, and another thing that uh, the 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 points, the best points haul uh, that that he got that year, the only one, eight points. Well, of Safari, uh, which was the only round that Toyota opted to send the uh, Supra Turbo, which of course was a very cool car, but completely ill suited to all the European sprint style events. Very much an African specialist in the same manner of the the Celica Twin Cam Turbo uh, of the Group B era, and and yeah, so so hardly the kind of <laughs> Uh, baptism you'd want for a new Group A rally car. Um, yeah. Yeah, and they didn't improve uh, too much for next year, although they did They did improve. Could only uh, improve. Yes, well, it's hard to really fall much lower, is it? Um, and they get a win in Rally Australia, but still a lot of reliability issues across the whole season, wasn't there? Yeah, um, uh, you know, uh, Australia back then, late in the season, I'm pretty sure Kankinen was had already decided he was out the door for uh, for 1990, um, and of course he went off back to Lancia for 1990, which hardly a bad move because Kankinen didn't make too many, but that did serve to promote Carlos Sainz to to the 1990 season and effectively team leader at TTE. And again, you know, history speaks, and he made very good use of that to win his first title. Yes, um, which then leads us very neatly to the doors going in the opposite direction, with signs going from Toyota to Lancia in 1993. So if we're talking about a car that must surely be at the end of its development cycle in 88, 89, this move still puzzles to this day. You know, at this point as well, we have to note that it isn't a works outfit really anymore. This is now the Jolly Club team running the car. It's pretty much the same guys, but it's not quite a, a works effort. Um, we're on the Evo 2 Integrale at this point, correct? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, Boyd, yeah, you know, and yeah, off the back of his win with TTE in this, you know, new Japanese techie, new way of doing things, maybe, um, to go back and drive a car that, uh, you know, surely seemed like there wasn't much left in it and and at this point as well we already have subaru and and rally art pro drive subaru and rally art starting to come over the horizon that the the dawning of the the japanese dominance of the world rally championship and, and a different 
different style of production rallying is now going to be fairly evident. To move to Lancia seems like an unusual and was an unusual choice. Yeah. I mean, as ever, hindsight's a wonderful thing. You know, we've all got a master's in hindsight. But uh, yeah, I guess someone was always going to be left holding the, the can at Lancia by, it must have almost been like musical chairs, aware that at some point this car is going to stop being competitive. But, you know, it hadn't shown any signs particularly of doing that the preceding three years. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's a move that, that everyone... I believe wanted Carlos to do, you know, ever since he was cutting his teeth in, in Sierras and things in the late eighties. And you know, I'd, I'd bet that house that if he'd somehow managed to wangle his way into there two years previously, it would be the world beating combo that we talk that, that with everyone expected. Um, but, you know, just one year too late. Um, and by that point, the Integrale had been caught and maybe not felled because he got, you know, uh, a couple of podiums and a fantastic second place in the Acropolis. But it was not the tour de force that we all expected. What I always think about with this one as well is that, you know, he's a young driver, clearly full of talent. He's already got a couple of world championships. Um, but what does he see beyond 1993? Like, does he just go, I'm going to do a one and done setup here at Lancia? You know, mm. what sort of future was there? I mean, with the best will in the world, I'm sure he knows there's going to be options open for him, but you know, there isn't always. But, you know, does he see a, a continuation of that program? Is there a new something coming? Yeah. What are they going to do beyond that? If, if it, you know, if it, if it all works out and everyone's happy and what do you do after that? What's on the horizon for yeah. rallying a Lancia? I think partly I've, I've heard that he got very, I mean, obviously he won the, the 92 title with the, uh, with the Toyota, um, but uh, it, it was it was an incredibly evil handling car at times. The ST one eight five, and a classic case of of a driver winning a title, winning despite the the car's foibles mm-hmm. rather than because of them. Um, so maybe it was a case of wanting to get some space away from it, and maybe if you were being charitable, charitable, you'd say that he wanted to see how the car developed before going back there, or, or perhaps he didn't think it was it was a you know some, a win that he'd managed to secure against the odds and he couldn't do again. Yeah, I mean, look, they all struggled with that car, didn't they? You know, so the the chance to move to Lancia, maybe just to wipe the slate clean and see what comes next. Yeah, and yet it, and yet it's the most statistically the most successful Salika rally car of them all. Um, you know, it obviously came good. Um, it became Swiss watch reliable, even if it was always a bit heavy and a bit ponderous, I've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, by that point, TTE had got their eye in and knew what they were doing. And of course, it was when you could really, really could throw money at a problem in terms of the infrastructure supporting a team in a car, you know, helicopters, remote servicing, the whole shebang. Yeah, it's just, I suppose it's, it's, it's as much memorable for it being the, the death knell of the integral is dominance just maybe with a driver that probably didn't deserve to be part of that death knell yeah and to give it its due it was hardly you know a, 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 a it didn't fall from grace dramatically did it you know perhaps if it had won one rally then it would be even sweeter but for a you know a, a car that was launched as a road car 11 years previously it's still quite something for it to be able to get second in the wrc round yeah it's not, i mean it's not maybe we're being very harsh on the integrale here and there's going to be italians clamoring for our blood it wasn't like it was trounced but it, it it still seemed to be doing reasonably reasonably well in spite of its age it's just it has to be underlined really doesn't it 
And from that, we go to uh, Richard Burns opting to depart Mitsubishi to Subaru um, for the 99 season, which is one of those that perhaps might not jump out as uh, an interesting move in as much as you know, Burns was by no means a failure at Mitsubishi. Um, in fact, he's one of the few drivers able to master the, the unique driving style required to get the most from the Evo 4 and 5. Um, they've both been developed, all those have been developed with Tommy in mind and his very unique driving style. Uh, but all the same, you know, it's hard to deny that it was a move that w- worked out very well. Obviously, it worked out very, very well two years later. But I don't think that Mitsubishi would have permitted Burns to ever beat Tommy in terms of team orders. I mean, perhaps if he'd, if he'd started out by trouncing Mackinnon from the very beginning in 98, 98 let's say, and, and just gave him nowhere to go. But, you know, that probably was never going to happen given Tommy was in a team built around him and the peak of his form. Yeah, and look, I mean, that's what a, what a consummate champion does really well is they create that place for themselves and that's why they're able to succeed repeatedly year on year when those things do happen and so you're dead right like it it was really never going to it was just not going to work for burns despite his obvious talent that we all know Mm -hmm. um it's just wasn't going to be the place for him to really showcase it Um, he was going to be at best a good second at Mitsubishi. Um, so yeah, Banbury came calling. He had done some driving for Subaru in Subarus before, you know, so he was reasonably familiar with the setup and organization as they were with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and off he went. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, Burns himself waxed lyrical about how much he liked that 99 car and even particular WRC 2000 of the year following. Um, he goes into great detail in the McLean rally book about or the rally cars book about how much he loves that car and, and how much it, uh, it put the, the Evo five into perspective, obviously by no means a bad car at all, but absolutely a step up in terms of what could be thought of as a, a what was possible uh, from a world rally car at the time. Yeah, and it allowed the spotlight to really shine on Burns for the first time properly. You know, I mean, not to say that, you know, he was an unknown, but to really, really show what this guy can do when he's given the opportunity to do so, you know, with a with a good outfit, a winning outfit um, behind him, you know, and still, you know, with, with teammates that he weren't exactly slouches either. So, you know, he still had a fight in his hands in terms of teammates. He wasn't the quote-unquote lead driver by any means. Um but he became that, that, didn't he? Eventually, exactly, you know, through, you know. You know uh, and it gives us all the stories. I mean, you know, Kankanen was no pushover back then, as as that infamous "Where there's a fin, there's a shark" quote from Robert Reed after uh, what was it? It wasn't Rally Finland in '99. The uh, um, the one that he got pipped to the post on. I think it was Argentina. You should know that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I'll have to the, check. I won't. I won't pretend to know that one. Kankanen obeyed, disobeyed team orders to 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 take that as last ever win, I believe. Yeah. And then, yeah. And, and Kankinen was, you know, right on him all the way through this time. You know, he got this, uh, a great second place in Finland, um, which was up against Kankinen all the way, who did, who did uh, take the victory there, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, that I think personally, that, that that's my favourite Burns performance, because I remember, I'm old enough to remember watching that, you know, on, on Eurosport at the time. Um, and, and just being entranced that it could be possible that, that you know, someone so far away from Scandinavian norm could be doing so well 
um, it, it on, on the Thousand Lakes uh, and against such talented opposition, you know, uh, fell slightly short at the end, but then that's no shame given the, 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 the quality it was against. Mm. I mean, this is still an era where it was expected that the non-Scandinavian would always struggle at the Thousand Lakes. Um, but it was, yeah. a, it was starting to change. But, you know, he was up against a local man and he, he, put it, he put it right up to them. Yeah, yeah. And also proved that, you know, it's, it's maybe Burns isn't one of these drivers that most people call to mind, a name that most people call to mind instantly when some mentions outright speed. But those performances in 99 and 2000 in those early WRC impressions kind of give light to that. He was phenomenally quick. Um, as quick as anyone when 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 he when he had the right tools. Yeah, and I suppose we we have to ask maybe you know would he have still become how we remember him now with if he'd stayed at Rally Art, you know Tommy, I'd probably not. I'd argue because the car wouldn't have been capable for it continuing as as we know that they prolonged the the, the life of the Group A car just too long. Um, yeah. And then the, the early WRC efforts were not good, frankly. Um, <laughs> uh, That's an early episode of Rally DNA to hear all about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like I said earlier, you know, a champion will now make a place his own and, and build a setup around him that will allow him to win consistently. And, you know, he was rewarded with a world championship with Subaru a couple of years later. Yeah, I mean, there's always a counterfactual, isn't there? Maybe it's maybe there's an alternate history where where Burns manages to to win, uh, you know, uh, quite a few rallies in in '98 and '99 with the Evo Five, uh, and then six, and then manages to play an outside role, outsize role in convincing Rallyat to sort of double down on on a Lancer WRC sooner and earlier and, and more emphatically, and, and then he wins, you know, in 2001 all the same, but they're in the red car. But who knows? <laughs> Indeed. An alternate reality, perhaps. And from there, then, I suppose at a similar time, we have a gentleman by the name of Marcus Granholm, who is now moving to Peugeot in 1999. Peugeot, you say Peugeot. Um, <laughs> I thought you might think that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, you all know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, so he's... He's come from a slightly different scenario here because he's not quite he's he's in and out of works teams occasionally. He'll he'll turn up, he'll be called upon for certain events uh with works outfits. But generally speaking, he's he's been in and out of a few cares the previous few years, hasn't he? Yes. And he also took it up relatively late. Um I think he was, you know, well into his thirties by the time by this point, I think, you know. Um uh, and and yeah, uh, he did, you know, great work in ST205 GT4s and, uh, you know, early Corollas and the Phase 1 Cordoba WRC. But, you know, the best one in the world didn't set the light, the world alight. Um, and I still don't think many people would have put, you know, a mental bet on him winning, being a world champion a year after signing with Peugeot. It certainly wasn't one of the evidence of one of these meteoric rises to to power fame and and championship titles uh, certainly mm-hmm. you know not not to do marcus any disservice here you know and and driving different cars throughout every couple of seasons before that you know there was, was there an escort Cosworth along the way there as well um sure. but certainly you know, to arrive in the fashion he did and obviously 
I don't know exactly the circumstances that led to that contract, but you know, he he obviously showed enough to be signed for that 206. Uh, yeah. And as we know, that car was very, very good. That's it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, and, and he was quick in the 206 in 99 and mm-hmm. and, and had a, a mounted a sort of an outside attack for the for a bit winning Rally Finland that year before uh, he went overtime at uh, a service. But, you know, even then with the best one in the world, plenty of Finns are, are quick at home. You know, in fact, you could argue that it's, you know, you've got to be very quick at home to even be a, a, you know, a Finnish rally driver. Um, so I still think most people would have perhaps thought twice before him betting on him being such an all-accomplished or turning into the all-accomplished all-rounder that he came became very swiftly after that. Well, I suppose it's probably the nature of, of the outfit that that hired him as well. You know, it, it, there probably wasn't going to be a seat for this guy at the more established runners that have been going the previous throughout the previous decade. You know, there probably wasn't going to be a seat for him at Rally Art, Pro Drive or Ford. Mm. But you know, the team itself was a, somewhat of an outsider, perhaps you could argue. And not, yeah. not an inexperienced team, but you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, there was, there was, I think there was a, a solid foundation of PSA tech to, who, who were kept in, in the fold from the Group B era, you know, because obviously Peugeot spent the 90s being motorsport as hell. You know, they went from Group B to, to uh, endurance and then that terrible dalliance in F1 and then back to rallying again. So I'm sure there was a core group of engineers and experience, you know, uh, underneath Corrado Provera, uh, but, but not, not the powerhouse that, that we now know it to be yeah and then he went on to make his world title look rather easy yeah yeah as a kid that certainly seemed to come out of the a bit out of the blue that title you know I certainly as a staunch McRae and Burns fan I was you know far more partisan back then when I was younger and it seemed you know almost unheard of that he should be able to do this but you know easily one of the drivers of his generation um okay. A car and driver coming right at exactly the same time. I think that's the thing, isn't it? That car was the 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 the, the template for what a, a world rally car could be. You know, as much as the early late nineties Impreza's were quick and impressive, it was tiny wheelbase with with tiny overhangs um, and and you know as what, what as much as you could do within those confines, really, which which Peugeot made work. Um, and led the way for the best part of half a de- decade. Yeah, I mean, look, it was the car to beat really for so long, and, and it spawned copycats almost as well. So, um, though you could argue the legalities of the, the car itself, um, but maybe that's a subject for another day. Are you referencing the, the extended bumpers and the, the need to get them homologating with that horrible 206 GT? <laughs> Correct. I did, I did actually see one park at the side of the road the other day going green in the middle of nowhere in Limerick somewhere um, under a bush. It, it's atrocious bumpers protruding onto the road as a hazard to passing cyclists. Got to be the cheapest way into homologation special ownership still going. <laughs> Cheap, but perhaps maybe still not worth it as you have no, seen no. in one. Um, but yeah, I'm sure there's a home for it um, somewhere. Someone I will go on record. <laughs> Where is it? I will go on record as saying the touristic look best in the 99 colours, personally, I think. I love that uh, white and blue. Maybe because that's V-Rally 2 imprinted in my memory. But uh, for me, that's it. 
Yes, I don't know. I I might debate it. It, it. It's good, but yeah, I don't know. I like the silver one. It's pretty good. Another thing that I hadn't thought about, I suppose it's also worth pointing, that there is there was quite a long history of Finnish drivers doing very well in Peugeots. I mean, Salonen, you know, it's it, it, it just a it just a free a, a short few years previously. Um, yeah, yeah, fair point, well made. From there, we're going to go to a driver we've referenced in a previous one, Mr. Tommy Mackinnon. So this move is it certainly falls into the camp of hmm, maybe just fizzled and not quite right. But I think I find this really interesting in terms of that it's it's must be evidence of. Uh, maybe not quite the passing of a torch, but maybe the passing of the torch for a whole generation of rally drivers, not quite from one to the other. Yes, yes, more more appropriate, perhaps. When Tommy went to Subaru, um, and I still think anytime I see a picture of, of Tommy in blue, it does seem like something from an alternate universe. It, there's something inherently wrong about Tommy Mackin wearing blue overalls at Subaru on them, in, in my mind anyway. Especially if they have five 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 from from that year instead of the rally art, it's like he's, he's got the wrong cigarette sponsorship as well. Yeah, yeah he's on it all wrong. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, th- this this very obviously didn't work out. Uh, but maybe it's just a fashion in which it didn't is really the why it's so interesting to discuss. And and obviously this this changing of the guard type scenario here, you know, I don't think it's really worth too much talking about his time at rally art. We all know how it went um yeah four world titles um but how did this come about i suppose look rally art were quite late to the world rally car regulations as, as we've discussed previously you know persisting with the group a care you know again with the, uh, the benefit of hindsight clearly the wrong decision although i think you'd probably have to say at the time it seemed like an odd one too but it, it didn't actually hurt them too much it wasn't as disastrous as one might expect early on because they they did all right with that group a care when the WRC cars were coming through then, didn't they? Well, yes, but that was partly positive because they, they made a sort of Faustian bargain, didn't they, to keep to, to keep developing the, the the old Group A car because Tommy was doing so well and the 2001 title was was still theoretically up for grabs. Um, but they'd, uh, they'd made that deal with the FIA previously, some years previously, they said they had to have a World Rally car homologated by Finland 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was an immovable date and... And as we've discussed, you know, it must have been a case of, right, all the eggs in the group A basket. Tommy could probably win it. Who knows? And if it had come off, then, hey, we wouldn't be looking back with it, perhaps with as much. Uh, uh, yeah. And it's probably, you know, it, it wasn't that disastrous at the time. It's probably more disastrous in what followed it, really, in that they were just too far behind, really, in the WRC regs as the other teams were getting to grips with it and, and the teething problems and the, the new way of doing things had been more or less worked out. Yeah, I think we all expected, anyone at the time expected, thought it you know, completely inconceivable that Mitsubishi wouldn't be back winning again in a sustained fashion within a few years. Yeah, it still hurts, to be honest, uh, a little bit. Um, but yeah, so in 2001, they did indeed homologate the Step 1 WRC car. And Tommy and his teammate, Freddie Likes, struggled. There's not really any other way of putting it, is there? Um, I mean, Lloyd's called... used to that. But... Yeah. <laughs> now you're offending Freddy. Um, but yeah, that culminated in a crash. His co-driver's back was broken, which which ended his career. Um, 
you know, Tommy was obviously very frustrated at this point with the care, visibly so, and seeking pastures new. Uh, and he didn't have anything left to prove, really, did he? You know, uh, certainly behind the wheel of a Mitsubishi anyway. And he made the switch to Banbury for 2002, replacing Richard Burns. Which, of course, was a fairly contentious swap in its own right anyway, that one. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these things on, up from the outside looking in, especially at the time, you thought, well, he's just going to slot right in and carry on where he left off. You know, it's a, it's a Finn in a Japanese saloony thing with, you know, how could it not? Yeah, and the, and the car he was going to had just won the World Championship mm. as well. So, you know, winning car. When he made his debut, it was still the car from the previous season as well. It was still the S7. Um, and he won on his first outing in it as well. Now, by not, not on the road, admittedly, but, you know, you still, you still have to be there. Loeb was disqualified um, at the end of Monte Carlo and Mackinnon inherited the win, but he still had to be there to inherit it. Second in Monte is still a good result and inheriting first is even better. I'm pretty sure that was two minutes ago. I refuse to believe it. it's it's two decades. That's that's awful. <laughs> Christ, yeah. It is that long ago, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and from there, it got a little bit rockier, didn't it? Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, it quite quickly became apparent that he struggled to gel with the car and also that there was a new generation, perhaps not so much waiting in the wings anymore, but elbowing its way to the fore. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the results for that season don't make for happy reading for Tommy, do they? You know, retired on six events and disqualified on another. Um, he did get two more podiums along the way, but really glimmers of light in an otherwise dark period. Especially for a guy who majored on consistency, you know, uh, throughout the early portion of his career. Well, exactly. Like, this this guy's whole thing, isn't it? Um, I remember reading some Rally XS uh, rundown of the top 10 drivers of that season at the time and I think they put Tommy in last and, and the, the, the fellas sign off was I can't wait till they hoik him out of that car at the end of the season in fact this was the end of two, the following year rather because he's tarnishing his reputation which is perhaps a little unfair but you know he certainly didn't do, didn't do his reputation any favours No I mean look he looked decidedly grumpy in those blue overalls um, maybe just Blue just wasn't for him. But um, well, yeah, like to bring us back to a point I've made earlier on, I think this this then does really usher in a new generation of drivers, really, because you know, Tommy wasn't the only guy from his generation to struggle with these these cars in the active two-liter WRC era, were they? No. Um, yeah, but we don't even bother listen to we don't even bother to list the, the guys like Colin and who also struggled with the Zara the following year. Yeah. Um definitely a sort of sea change. Um, in, in, in what was quite required to, uh, to, to get the most from one of these modern cars. And, you know, I suppose there's perhaps a, a case of teaching an old dog new tricks. Some guys able to, proved able to adapt to it, you know, Gronholm perhaps being the, the best example. But some of these guys who'd, you know, cut their teeth throwing Group A or perhaps even, you know, if we go far enough, that Group B stuff around really would, did seem to struggle to gel with the, the, the smoother, flowing, less is more style needed by the active cars. Yeah, and I mean, look, this was really evidenced in 2003. You know, so we've moved to the S9 now, the S7 and S8, they're things of the past. Maybe they were just bad cars that Tommy wasn't able to work with. But in 2003, the, the other car was driven to the title by his teammate, Peter Salberg, whereas Tommy just had a, just a mediocre season, really not befitting a man of his talents. 
And then he hung up his helmet after finishing third on Rally GB at the end of the year, admittedly. But it really just finished off his time in the rally car, didn't it? Vividly. I've, yeah, absolutely. I remember vividly watching that uh, at the time I was there by the stage with my dad. And I'm pretty sure it was a battle for third between Colin and, uh, and Tommy, uh, which, which Tommy ultimately emerged victorious on. Um, sticks my mind. Yeah, definitely felt like a sort of changing of the guard and the passing of a torch at the time. And, and even more so now with, yet again, the benefit of, of time, hindsight and distance. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't the only one, was he? But I think it was just maybe just more obvious in Tommy's case, perhaps, along with, with, with Petter. Also because he was the winningest driver in WRC history at the time. You know, I, 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 I can't have been alone in thinking it was fairly inconceivable that anyone would top four on the bounce. Um, didn't take long to be disabused of that notion, of course. But at the time, that seemed fairly unimpeachable. <laughs> Yeah, and look, we'll talk about someone in a minute, you know, who also came off the back of multiple world championships into a new regulation era and a new team and new care and did make it work. So it can be done. Um, but maybe in this time, not the same kind of transition, was it? Mm, no, not at all. Of course, it's not always quite such a clear-cut thing because there are several instances of very successful championship-winning drivers leaving a team uh, and then bringing their success with them and carrying off, carrying on right where they left off. And, and perhaps one of the best, most recent examples of this uh, is Sebastian Ogier's move from Volkswagen Motorsport to M Sport Ford in 2017. Yeah. And I suppose not so much a move in terms of he was evicted and had to find a new house. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it seems, again, that seems like I, I struggle to believe that so far ago, five, six years ago now as well. It seems so fresh, the, all the, the hoo-ha and the discussion uh, as to where he was going to end up. And I remember him covertly testing various cars. I think he tested the Yaris at the time, uh, obviously certainly the, the Fiesta. I'm pretty sure the one, the only one he didn't test in the, the, the winter off-season that year was the C3. Which I think maybe is kind of unusual given, okay, he did end up at Citroen later on, but you would have thought maybe that this is Citroen rubbing their hands and saying, right, let's get Ogier on board, French driver, French team. He should have stuck with that, uh, whatever told him not to go there originally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so as you say, I mean, look, they're all, they're all going to be clamoring for this guy, surely, you know. Um, again, multiple world championships on the bounce, just no real challenge to him, really, was there? Um there was a Eurosport headline of, of OGA impresses M Sport in Fiesta test, which seems like the most ridiculous thing to say. I mean, of course he's going to impress M Sport. It's Sebastian Ogier. Yeah. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to do a phone interview with Marco Wilson in uh, midway through 2018, I think, and, and talked to him about that test. And, and he said, you know, did you know straight away how much of an asset he was going to be? And he said, absolutely, yes. And as you might expect when it comes to a driver like Ogier, you know, he was incredibly impressed by how professional and how set up and tech uh, ready he was from the very beginning, you know, offering improvements and suggestions for setup tweaks that paid dividends there and then. Um, the kind of thing that, you know, if you need to be a hyper successful world rally driver in the modern era, you kind of need as part of your toolkit, I suppose. Yeah, and I think look, the reason we've we've selected this to, to go on the list really is is as a counterpoint, obviously, to Tommy's, you know, not so successful transition to to Subaru, but also that 
this move to Emsworth probably wasn't the most obvious one, was it? You know, given that he's coming from this 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 seeming Volkswagen juggernaut, well oiled, you know, well clicking machine. Not to say that M Sport isn't, but you know, they didn't have the same level of backing or budget or manufacturer support. Um, so it may not have seemed like the most natural home for a guy coming from VW Motorsport, in my eyes. And and it didn't to me at the time. I was very happy to see him go there. Um no, but there's but, a reason that it caused so many big headlines when it when he when it was announced, right? I mean, there's a reason there's that video of 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 Malcolm announcing to the M Sport you know, crew and team back in, in Cumbria, they'd got him and, and everyone going wild into fits of rapture because, you know, partly they knew what that meant, but also it was always a bit of an out there ask, wasn't it? And I'm sure it took a lot of backroom negotiating and number crunching for it to happen. Well, I suppose obviously in the first year, the benefit was that his wages were still being paid by Volkswagen, wasn't it? So, mm. which, you know, a huge benefit assuming as well that his wage is quite substantial that you can then dump that into the cares development which of course i mean you know m sport have a long history a proud history of of starting uh new developmental regs very strongly and this most recent set is well the, the ones recently replaced it's, it's got to be the best example right i mean the 2017 2018 fiesta you know it, it, its advantage was steadily eroded but for that first season pretty much the card have and the following one <laughs> in Ogier's hands. Yeah, well, I'd maybe argue a little bit different. I think, you know, Ogier is probably the force multiplier here. The, the, the Yaris is probably the, arguably the stronger car of the bunch at this time, but he is just this force multiplier. And then, you know, with the, the benefit of his experience and his professionalism and his developmental knowledge, you know, we, we all know the stories with there was different dampers being thrown in for him and, and all these setup adjustments. And that's what makes a champion make a different outfit work in a real way, uh, in a, in a car that not that it shouldn't have been winning, but it may not have been the obvious winner alongside its contemporaries. Classic greater than some of its component parts in terms of car and driver thing. Um, and he also became, I believe the first Ford rally driver to defend a title in a Ford when he, did the double in 2018. Which does seem bizarre when you get, take Ford's history and the sport into account. It does, doesn't it? it does. <laughs> they're, they're probably the one constant in rallying, really. Pretty much, aren't they? They would be. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's been a few close calls. And of course, you know, the, the, the lack of presence in the, the early mid 80s after the Mark II and, and the the aborted Mark III uh, RS1700T, of course. But yeah, absolutely. The closer we've got to a sort of a perennial constant in rallying. And then, of course, when he does leave Ford to go to Citroen, um, <laughs> we didn't have the first time in years that a Sebastian didn't win the World Championship. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, in what was, you know, it probably wasn't as ill-informed a decision as one would think i mean you know the obvious driving of a berlingo full of cash up to his house um you know but a chance to win a championship in a french team in a french car before presumably heading off into the sunset fairy tale ending yeah i mean it seemed like that was the plan at the time i don't know about you yeah and, and let's face it it wouldn't have been at all naive or indeed arrogant of him to to, to correctly think 
if anyone can make this car work, it has to be me. Because I mean, look at his CV, look at his back record, and everything else. You know, um, the the commitment to make it work was was never in doubt, at least early on. But then, of course, the C3 WRC was fundamentally a bit of a compromised car, and I'm not going to open the can of worms as to who we should blame for that, or you know. But but certainly, it, it, it was it seemed a car that was hard to improve upon to, to any great deal. Yeah, I don't think any amount of seat time and testing with Auger would have turned it into a winning car without a huge, huge overhaul of the of the platform itself. I mean, of course, he did win in it, of course, didn't he? He won more than anyone else in it in terms mm-hmm. of actual victories. But, but yeah, those were interspaced by fairly big retirements. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it wasn't a car that was ever going to give him a, another world championship. There just was no way it was going to work, was it? No, no. Um, yeah. But he certainly made that time at M Sport work. And, and I think it, it's a great example of, of the champion making the right decision, ensuring the tools for him to continue winning were at his disposal. He was probably, he might have been able to wield his power maybe a bit more readily at M Sport mm. than going to one of the big manufacturers that were backing the teams fully yes who had their own kind of fingers in the pie and, and ideas for drivers and stuff i mean it's a proper feel-good story and i think it's one of these things if what is one of the the greatest human stories of, of the modern era in the wrc i think personally and i think it's also one of these these uh, sort of anecdotes and stories that will only become more and more impressive with with the passage of time yeah, and it's always great to see M Sport win because they're just that. There's always an element of underdog to the M Sport story, and it's everyone loves that, don't they? Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like uh, modern era Williams doing well. You know, it's 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 hard to begrudge them, especially where in this case, unlike Williams, they are winning on merit, consistently winning and winning titles. You know, it's you know, let's not denigrate them by saying it was luck or or you know overachieving all the way. It was like no, it was a damn good car with a damn good team with an incredible driver you make your own luck spot on and sticking with the 2017 wrc era that leads us neatly to what it's more of a strange scenario perhaps and definitely one that falls into the category of you know times that rallying doesn't really give you a whole pile of options for different seats different drives because of the nature of the sport and the small amount of cars, teams and, and contracts available. With Esapeka Lappi going from Toyota to Citroen. Absolutely, right? I mean, this, you know, Lappi, when he, when he exploded into that Toyota gig in 2017, I think certainly I remember professing him a, a, a world champion in waiting and it was only a matter of time before he was, you know, knocking on the door of Ogier and Second Co. But I mean, that, that finish win four events i think it's the fourth yaris start he did yeah um you can never take that away from him that was a comprehensive blitzing performance yeah in in a car that is streets ahead of what he was driving the year before because there there's no other way of putting it there's a huge gulf between r5 cars and world rally cars um of that period so to get so comfortable in an event like that and take home your maiden wrc victory is is so so impressive and, and remains so but i mean you've got to look at his 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 lead up to this point in toyota you know is that that meteoric rise is is certainly evident in this case you know european champion 2014 
dominated WRC in two in 2016. You know, ninth place on his maiden Monte Carlo in an R5 car. And the same year, he was seventh overall in Rally Deutschland in an R5 mm-hmm. car. So you can't take any of that away from, from a guy. That's, that's a guy that has the chops. You can see why they signed him up. Absolutely. Although, Mackinnon didn't want to sign him, really, because he, he, he tried to get Meek, and he couldn't because he'd been tied down for a long-term contract with Citroen and then opted for Lappy. Yeah, it's easy to forget how much uh, pulling power Meek had back then. Um, yeah, incredible. Not that he's not a talented driver in his own right. Oh yeah, don't get me wrong. You know, I, I'm as much a, a Meek fan as the next person, but it just it seems to me that it's, at the time it would be an unusual choice to opt for a guy that's over. You know, someone that's you know coming up, winning into junior categories, clearly has a bright future. To a guy that's maybe coming to the end of his career, he's that bit older, still still got the t- the talent to win rallies, but for a new team in a new regulation era, you know, and a, and a Finn as well, to yeah. sit in, in a team that's based in Finland, that would have seemed to me like a more logical option than than trying to to, to sign Meek from Citroen. Yeah, you'd think it would be something of a no brainer, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm not sure as to the thinking of that. Yeah, and, I, and I'll be honest, I, I forgot that that was, was the case as well. You know, it, it just, you know, it's a few years ago now. Was, yeah, Lappy was, was signed up. Yeah, that's obvious enough given his, his history. But then 2018 comes around. Meek loses a seat at Citroen after a series of, of accidents in, you know, we, we've discussed this just a moment ago, a car that is inherently flawed. And then all of a sudden, Meek's going to Toyota, so Tommy Mackinnon has gotten the guy he's wanted all along, it seems. But that does leave Mr. Lappy out of a seat. Yeah, it was an odd state of affairs, wasn't it? And you can see why when Citroen came a-calling, um, even though the C3's weaknesses would have been apparent to him, you know, the idea of a Pucker Works contract with the, the winningest rally team in the modern era. It doesn't take much of a, a leap of thought to see why Lappy made the call on paper. Yeah, and again, you know, he's in the position now that you know there, there isn't much room at the table. There's 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 limited space. You're going to take what you can get, aren't you? You know, so you can't you can't you know, thing. try and criticize his decision by any means. He's going to stay at the top of the, of his sport in a team that has a great history. And presumably he says, well, okay, they, they, they could come good. But I'd imagine he would have stayed happily at Toyota in a car that was evidently the, the pick of the bunch. Mm. Um, oh, they're all very close, admittedly, bear the Citroen. But, you know, this is a good car. Okay, he's probably not going to beat Tanak in that car, perhaps. Um, but, you know, he's, he's doing okay, isn't he? It's not like he's had a disastrous 2018. Although, oddly... He did score more podiums in the C3 in 2019 than he did in the Yaris in 2018, mm. in which he came third twice in the Yaris in 2018, and he came second three times in 2019 in the Citroen, which is unusual. Another good uh, answer and question for the most esoteric pub rally pub quiz ever that. <laughs> um, and then, of course, there's also the, the unknown of Lappy's seemingly somewhat fractious relationship with Toyota higher ups at the time. Um, you know, hard to know how much of it's true and how much where to apportion blame. But 
you know, I think we've all heard at the time about sort of reports of things being quite fractious with him and Tommy. Yeah, and, and I mean, maybe that is now being proved to be true, given that Lappy is now back at Toyota, partially at least, um, mm. with, with Yari Matty at the helm. Yes, yes, and yeah, absolutely, yeah. That. <laughs> um, but I mean, his time at Citroen wasn't all bad, because he did get to meet you, didn't he? And drive you around at a Berlingo. He did. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm not sure how, that, how, how far up Lappy's own career highlights that that rank certainly much higher in mind than his i dare say was it the same berlingo they used to deliver all that money to sebastian well, Ogier's house? i found a few yeah a few euros kicking around the back um i wish you told me about the fly-off hydro handbrake when i was having a quick poodle around the rally stage on it though he hid that until until he jumped in the driving seat <laughs> so there was a fly-off handbrake in a berlingo it was a hydro yeah yeah yeah. it, it was tasty yeah hidden uh behind the part of the plastic dash cover um which made the whole thing a lot more entertaining when he was driving his car. I wonder, could I get one fitted to my brother and go? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the rest, again, as they say, is history. It's a bit, it's a bit, uh, a bit of a hackneyed thing to say, but Citroen's withdrawal at the end of 2019 kind of left Lappy up the creek for a while. Yeah, and I mean, look, he's... Again, we, we've already given evidence of, of the man, what the man can do behind the wheel of a rally car. And, and you know, he's, he's doing all right in that Toyota and the few events he's gone out on. He did okay in the Ford as well. He did, of course, the 2020 season isn't worth remembering for many reasons. Um, but, you know, he, he had a few outings in it. It wasn't particularly shameful or anything like that. And he's, he's, getting, on, he's getting on okay with that, that the Aris. Well, he, got a, he, he got a fourth in... Finland last year in a semi-privateer Yaris WRC, didn't it? Which, yep. which, you know, I mean, we all know that drivers don't lose their speed that quickly, but it must have been a, a proper confidence boost to have a strong finish like that for his own sort of mental fortitude. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I imagine after a couple of years he's had, those are the kind of things that you need as a driver to rediscover some form, isn't it? It's always the one people are clamouring about. You just need to get that result to, to get you back going again. And of course, he came third in Sweden this year. Yeah, absolutely. And what's quite interesting about this point, uh, more so than the others, is that it's very much unfolding as we speak. You know, uh, there's there's nothing to say that the unlikelier things have happened and Lappy uh, putting strong performances together in the remaining rounds he has and getting further success in the years to come. You know, we all know motorsport's a wild thing. Who knows? Well, you'd you'd imagine that perhaps with Ogier's partial programme, going on and and Lappy seems to be picking up other events that when Ogier finally does ride off into the sunset that there might be more more sea time available for Lappy and I'd like to see it uh, to be honest he seems like a good bloke and all that and uh, I'd like to see more of what he can do behind the wheel of a rally car so he's a nice guy <laughs> oh, well, you have to say that he's your mate <laughs> um, and that neatly brings us to an end um, I hope we didn't waffle too much with this one it's something new for us to try um but a fun yeah. it. please please do let us know what you thought um don't worry it won't be replacing the regular format but uh, we wanted to give it a go whether to make sort of the the back and forth conversational stuff work uh, and hopefully hopefully as, as killian said you found it entertaining yeah we, we 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 may certainly do do more episodes of this type um it's nice to try something new and it's a bit of fun doing the research and whatnot for it as well. So yeah, I hope I hope you've all enjoyed it. And that brings us to an end of season one of Rally DNA. And 
absolutely can't believe we've we've gotten a season never mind 10 episodes or 10 episodes and some part ones and twos as well along the way um it's been great i didn't think that this would ever come this far credit to you man your idea your baby to start with it's 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 an incredible play incredible thing and wonderful wonderful to, to be part of thank you and thanks for for being part of it too i mean look it 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 takes a bit of the pressure off it i think it would be very intimidating to try this on your own anyway so yeah yeah. (laughs) um so we're going to take a break for a few weeks we'll still be interviewing some new guests for season two uh along the way and um we will rejoin you guys in four weeks time for a new episode for season two thanks very much thanks for listening everyone